Uh, this morning we are continuing in our series on the life of Elijah and Elisha, now focusing on Elisha. We'll be in 2 Kings chapter 6, starting at verse 24 this morning. Last week we saw how Israel's enemy, Syria, was at work um, and persecuting um, her people. Uh, this morning um, we continue. Um, to see uh, this as, as Syria comes, as we see the siege of Samaria. And one of the things I hope we will see is that this siege of Samaria, while it's very difficult for Israel, it comes because of Israel's disobedience. It comes because they have continued in their idolatry. We're going to start reading at verse 24. I'm just going to read part of the text now, and we'll come back to it um, as we uh, move through the passage this morning. So starting at verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadid, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver in the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor and from the wine press. And the king asked her, What is your trouble? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his own presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when this messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord? any longer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word as it is before us this morning. Would you help us? Would you teach us this day to trust and cling to your word, to cling to its promises and know of its wonderful truths? Holy Spirit, would you instruct our hearts this day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I doubt many of you are in the same category as me. You didn't grow up in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, but if you did, you would know much about Sherman's March to the Sea, where he marched after first having burned Atlanta, Georgia, to the ground and just <laughs> had a path of destruction all the way to Savannah, destroying pretty much everything in between, uh, a distance now that requires about a four-hour drive, total destruction in between. When he got to Savannah... He found that Savannah was defended by about 10,000 soldiers. They were dug in pretty good. It wouldn't be easy to just take over Savannah, but what he could do was shut down all access. He wrote to the commander of the armies there in Savannah, and he said this, I have for some days held and controlled every avenue 
by which people and garrison, uh, everybody with which you can be supplied in Savannah, Savannah. And he said, surrender should you entertain this proposition. I'm prepared to grant liberal terms to your inhabitants and garrison, but should I be forced to resort to assault or slower and surer part process of starvation, I shall then feel justified in resorting to the harshest measures and shall make little effort to restrain my army. The threat was one of total destruction first with starvation of the people. The Confederate armies actually escaped across the Savannah River and the officials of the city offered no resistance and allowed them to take over in exchange for preserving the city of Savannah, and you may know Savannah was given as a Christmas present to Abraham Lincoln. I beg to present you, Sherman wrote, uh, as a Christmas gift, the city of Savannah. If you could imagine living in Savannah in those days, totally besieged. Now, they didn't get to the point that the people in our passage got, but can, can you imagine the threat of it? The threat of famine, the threat of starvation, the threat that came with it, that's where the people of, of Israel were at in Samaria. We read in verse 25 of this, don't we, as they're besieged, the entire army, and we read of how horrible it is, and, and some of these things may not make much sense to us, but here a donkey's head sells for 80 shekels, and dove's dung, just a little over two cups of dove's dung if you're counting, Sells for five shekels. Now, a shekel in this day was about a month's wage. So this is an incredibly expensive donkey's head and very expensive dove's dung. Now, a donkey's head um, would not give you that much nutrition, but you see how incredibly expensive it would be. And not to mention, it wasn't kosher. It wasn't a food that they should have been eaten anyway. And then this dove's dung, and there's a lot of ink spilt on what this dove's dung is. Is it dove's dung? Um, is it something that just looks like dove's dung and is just not very pleasant to eat? And so it's kind of a pejorative term about whatever kind of food this is, or maybe it was used to fuel fire. I don't think it really matters too much. The point is, it's really bad. The situation, if you're living in Israel in this day, it's, it's really bad as they're besieged. But it's even worse you know, we think of the inflation today. We think of how gas prices spiked a little while ago. You think of how eggs were almost five bucks uh, a dozen not that long ago. This inflation that they were seeing in Israel is nothing compared. Uh, what we experience is nothing compared to that. But it gets so, so worse, doesn't it? Verse 26, the king, we assume it's King Jehoram, is riding in the city. And a, a woman says to the king, help my lord, O king. And what does he say if the lord will not help you. How? How shall I help you? He probably assumes she's asking for food. But the king is helpless to do anything for the situation they find themselves in. He asks her, what's your trouble? And then she tells him a horrific story. She says, me and this, this other woman, we went into this agreement that one day we would eat my son and the next day we would eat hers. It's terrible. And they went through with it, or this woman went through with it, and they ate her son, they boiled her son, and then when the next day comes, the other son is not to be found. The other woman has reneged on her promise. And the woman, as you can only imagine, is totally despondent. This is the depths to which Israel has sunk. 
You see the king's reaction. What does he do? He tears his, his clothes. And, and initially, this seems like maybe Jehoram, maybe the king actually gets it, right? It seems positive. He, he sees how bad things are. The king seems to be affected by how terrible things have gotten. And then we actually see whenever he tears his clothes, what do we see is underneath, but he is, the king himself is wearing sackcloth. That should be in some ways encouraging as well. Now, why would he be wearing sackcloth? Likely, I I can't imagine that Elisha doesn't have something to do with it, especially considering his contempt in this passage for Elisha. That no doubt the king is at some point or another asked Elisha or one of the other prophets, "What, what am I supposed to do? We're totally besieged. We're starving here. What am I to do? And he's instructed to repent. And so what do we see the king here wearing? He's wearing, he's wearing the garb of repentance. This is good news, right? Except we hear the words of the king. And we hear that whatever repentance, why ever he was wearing the sackcloth, it was just for show. What did he say to the woman initially? If the Lord will not help you, how shall I? It seems as though he's given up on the Lord. What does he do whenever all this happens? He says, what do I want? I want Elisha's head. And so he sends a hitman to go take out Elisha. And when this messenger gets to Elisha, what does he say? Verse 31, may God help me. Um, so may God do so to me and more also. Sorry, I'm on the wrong passage there, aren't I? He says, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Do you hear what he's saying? You hear what Jehoram's saying? He's given up. He, he went through the process of putting on the sackcloth, and now he has given up, and he wants Elisha's head. This God of Yahweh, suppose God is doing nothing for me. What we see in this passage is an incredible breakdown in society, isn't it? I mean, it's horrifying when you think about the details of what's taking place here. And this story is not a story about the horrors of how bad Syria is in doing this. You know, that's, that's the story you hear if you grew up in Savannah. You, you hear about how bad Sherman is. That, that's not this story. This story isn't about how bad Syria is. The story is about how bad Israel is. That's why this has happened In fact, this very thing that's taking place, it was already promised. Before the Israelites went into the promised land, Moses told them this, if you don't keep covenant with me, this is what's going to happen, Deuteronomy 28. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat. Do you you hear this? And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the stress with which the enemy shall distress you. Moses said this exact thing was going to happen, and now it's coming to fruition, and it's coming to fruition not because Syria is so bad, but because Israel is so disobedient. They've succumbed to their idolatry. They have failed to trust in their God they fled to everything else and everywhere else. They're showing, even in the midst of famine, that their hope and their trust is not in their God to bring them through this. 
Jehoram, whatever he was doing, whatever the king was doing there, he was, he was, he was just showing the signs of repentance outwardly, but it's clear those didn't come from the heart. They were merely performative. He was just wearing those sackcloths, no doubt, to try to manipulate God, manipulate Yahweh into ending the siege, right? Now, what do we do with this? How, how, how do we find ourselves in this? Because, we, you know, the story seems so horrific, right? But I think we can think for a moment about how we handle our difficult hours and our difficult days and our difficult times. How do you do it? Do you, maybe like me and maybe, maybe most of us, we start in a good place. We start with prayer in the midst of our distress. But I fear too often, what do we do? What, what, what is our tendency to do but very quickly to per, pursue our own remedies? To figure out how we can fix this. To figure out what do we need to do to make everything right and what do we fail to do in the midst of that but truly trust him. Truly trust him amidst the difficulties that come in our life. We try to manufacture our outcomes. We aren't very good at trusting him, are we? What does Paul teach us in Philippians? He talks a bit about this. He says this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Where? is Paul's hope wrapped up in. His hope is wrapped up in his Savior, Jesus Christ. Where is your hope wrapped up? Is your hope wrapped up in the things of this world? In the outcomes here and now? In everything coming out the way that you want them now? Or is your hope truly in Christ and in knowing him? You know, we, we constantly look to other things, right? We, we, we look to things like politics. Maybe politics can solve my problems. If we get the right people in office, then, then everything is going to be okay, right? In some ways, the story is a bit of a parable about this. What do we see? The king, the one who's in control of Israel, what is he able to do? Nothing. He has nothing to bring to the table. The one thing he can do, he's not doing, which is trusting his God, trusting his word, repenting and truly turning from it. What is our passage teaching us? It's teaching us, it's showing us Israel's failure, the king's failure, and probably our failure as well, our failure to truly repent, to turn from our lack of faithfulness, our lack of trust in him, and finding our hope as, as we saw the Apostle Paul do ultimately in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what's astounding of this story is there is absolutely nothing positive going on here with Israel, as we've just seen, is there? There's no positive uh, repentance seeming to take place. There's nothing good seeming to go forward. Last thing we know is the king wants Elisha's head on a platter. But what does God do? He brings undeserved favor into this situation in an incredible, incredible way. I was reminded of Gollum, of course, um, both in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, 
this creature that just so desired the ring became corrupt above all else. And if you know anything of the story, uh, Bilbo in The Hobbit, he had the opportunity to kill Gollum. And he didn't. Why? Because he had pity on him. Later on, Gandalf's talking with uh, Bilbo's cousin, Frodo. And Frodo's saying, what a pity that, that he didn't kill him when he had the opportunity, that Bilbo didn't kill him. And Gandalf says it was because of pity. He had mercy on him. And Frodo says, I'm sorry, I, I could never do that. I don't, he doesn't deserve any sort of pity. Gandalf said this, have you seen him? Have you, you haven't seen him. And Frodo says, no, I don't, I don't ever want to. He deserves death. What does Gandalf say? Deserve it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies. But there is a chance of it. There's a chance. And of course, what does Frodo do as the story progresses? Multiple times after seeing Gollum and pitying him, he doesn't take the opportunities that he has to kill him. He shows him undeserved mercy. God shows incredible undeserved mercy in our passage this morning. Verse 1, chapter 7, hear the word of the Lord, Elisha says. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he, Elisha said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. You understand what's going on here? Despite Israel's lack of faithfulness, despite the fact that Israel's king is seeking God's prophet's head, okay, this is a pretty dire situation. What does God do? God promises mercy. It's amazing. It's astounding. (laughs) You, You talk like Frodo. He deserves death. But God brings mercy. He says in verse 1, tomorrow. Tomorrow, what's going to happen? You're going to be able to buy seven and a half quarts of flour for one shekel. Remember one shekel, about a month's wage. You're going to be able to buy 15 quarts of barley for two shekels. Now, this is still very inflated. Normally, you could buy like 100 quarts of barley for a shekel. So the prices are still high, but suddenly they become a little more manageable. And remember, and think about what this really means. The only way this takes place is what? Is if somehow the siege ends. But even if the siege ends, suddenly food doesn't come out of nowhere, right? That's not the way things work. And it seems like the captain knows this well. What does he say in verse 2? If the Lord himself should make the windows of heaven open, could this thing be? Even if God, he says this, even if God right now opens up heaven's windows and starts dumping food in, 
It's not going to be able to happen quick enough to do what you say. What you say is impossible. And it was impossible. And we're going to see it come true. Now, as a result of him not believing, this captain not believing God's word through his prophet, Elisha tells him, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. There will be judgment for him for not trusting God's word. We'll see that in a few minutes. But what we see here is what is the captain really doing? He's refusing to trust the word, trust the promise. And what have we seen over and over as we've gone through these stories is that Elijah's promises, Elisha's promises, the promises of God's prophet, they keep coming true. The captain should have never doubted this, but we see the heart. What's the heart of Israel's problem? This lack of trust in their God. This lack of trust in his word. That's what Israel was struggling with. And amidst the difficult times, they, instead of trusting him, they looked everywhere else for a solution. What do you do? In the midst of difficulty, do you look to him or do you look everywhere else? The author of Hebrews puts it this way, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What is our call today? Amidst the difficulties of our life and and the struggles and those times where we're low, those times where we are distressed, what are we to do? We are called to believe his word, to believe his promises for his people. Now, let me make sure we're clear here. I don't mean the promises that he hasn't made. Those promises that we so often put on him. Like that we're going to get that job or that relationship or our kids are going to get into that school, or even that we're going to be able to enjoy tomorrow with our family. I'm not saying promises that he doesn't give us. What promises am I talking about? Let's look to Jesus' own words. What does he say in John 6? For this is the will of my Father. We need to listen up if Jesus is telling us that everyone, everyone, who looks on the Son and believes Him, should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's the great promise. The great promise that we will be with Him for eternity if we believe and we trust in Him. That on the last day, He is making all things new and bringing all things to a good end, even if we can't understand them now, it is a call to trust and cling to Him and His promises. Understanding what what Paul says in Ephesians 1, that in Christ, what? We have every spiritual blessing. Do you believe it? I think we tend not to. question kind of comes down to this. As we evaluate our heart, I think, is do you want, is what you want or what you're really seeking after is a good life now? 
I fear that's too often what we're looking for, is a good life now and things to go well now. Do we want that or do we want Him? That's hard, isn't it? Our hearts struggle, our hearts are pulled between the two things. And we're called, as, as the Apostle Paul did, to want Jesus above all things, to, to think of Him as, as worth everything. There's a memory that's kind of burnt. I don't know why. So, sometimes, like, we have these memories, and it's kind of like, well, why, why is that a memory that's like, like I remember? But I, I have vivid kind of memories of it some 35 years ago on a Friday evening. October 16th, 1987. I had to look up the date. I didn't remember that part. Um, I spent the night at a friend's house, and we were in their family room. The family room, one corner was their Commodore computer. Uh, me and my friend, we were playing, you know, this Commodore computer, black screen, green text, amazing graphics, right? We were playing some incredible game. His, friend, his, his parents were in the same room. They were watching the news that night. On the news was the story of a little 18-month-old little girl named Jessica McClure. She'd fell into a well, a little well, just eight inches wide, fallen down some 30 feet into the well. She was down there for over 58 hours. It's like a whole city came out to try to rescue her, drilling a hole, another shaft down parallel to it so they could rescue her her out, and there she was rescued some 58 hours later. Incredible rescue. What does that have to do with our story of siege and hunger and promise of provision? That's a pretty incredible rescue of that little girl. I think we need to understand that in our passage is just as an incredible of a rescue. Even more incredible of a rescue, maybe I should say. You see, the people... In Israel, they were just as much on the verge of death as Jessica was. And what does God do? He comes in and he rescues them. And he rescues them. The story of his rescue is strange. The story picks up, verse 3, with four lepers at the gate. And if you're reading the story, you wonder, why, where, where are we going now? Why are we talking about lepers? What's the deal here? It's like we're dropped into a whole different world. And there we have these lepers, and they're sitting there, they're talking with each other, and they're about to die there at the gate. And they say, well, if we, if we go into the city, we're going to die. They say, well, if we stay here, we're going to die. And then they continue to think. They say, well, well maybe if we go to the enemy's camp, the Syrians' camp, Maybe we won't die. I mean, we'll probably die, but maybe we won't. Maybe they'll offer us some food. Who knows? We haven't had very good luck with our own people. They reject us. They don't want anything to do with us. Maybe, maybe with the Syrians. And so verse 5, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. <laughs> the camp's empty. What's going on? We learn in verse sixes, 6 and 7. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound 
of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. They just hear stuff. Nothing's really going on. God is at work all by himself, not needing anyone else's help. The story, he, he works totally by himself. And so they fled away in the twilight. They abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys. Leaving the camp as it was, they fled for their lives. And so these lepers, what do they do? They come in, verse 8. They came into the edge of the camp. They went into the tent. They ate. They drank. They carried off silver and gold and clothing. They went and hid them. Then they came back. They entered another tent. They carried off more things, and they went and hid it. They're just enjoying themselves. I kind of think of Kevin McAllister, like, right, whenever, you know, he, he realizes that his parents are gone, and what does he do? He just starts, like, gorging himself and, and everything until life kind of hits him, and he's got to get to work. It seems the lepers enjoy themselves for a bit, but then things hit them. Verse 9, they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go, and let's tell the king's household. Their consciences have been pricked, unlike we've seen this passage. The king's conscience certainly doesn't seem to be really pricked, nor does the rest of Israel. They realize that if they wait, they're going to probably be found out, and things won't be good for them. But I think most of all is, is that phrase that we hear in there, good news, They've feasted, and they can't keep this good news to themselves. They can't help but share the good news, the provision that they found. They can't help but share the good news that Yahweh has just rescued Israel. And suddenly, what do we have here? We have the least of these, the ones that nobody wants anything to do with leading Israel. The unclean, the outcasts, leading God's people to feast. So they come, they, 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 they go to the king, they have him awoken. It's in the middle of the night. And the king wakes up and he says, like Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Except it's not really a trap in this case. A plan's developed. They make a recommendation. Let's send him five men. Let's send him off to see what's going on. The king's like, we can't afford that many because I'm sure this is a trap. So they send but two men. And those men, they come back and they report that indeed the Syrians are gone. The siege is over. They have been rescued in the most incredible way. What incredible good news. Verse 16, then the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel. Two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. The promises of God, His word, His promises had come true. Just as they do every single time, every promise that He has made to us in Christ comes true. So too must the words of judgment, though, that were spoke on that captain, those must come true too. We see that in verse 17, the king 
had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God, as Elisha had said when the king came down to him. Everything happened precisely as God's word through his prophet has said. 100% trustworthy. One commentator puts it this way. The message is clear. Both individuals and nations ignore the word of the Lord at their peril. What do we do with all this? I was thinking about, you know, I mean, can you imagine if you were the first hearers of this, this story? This book of Kings likely delivered to the people while they're in exile. Why are they in exile? They're in exile because of their disobedience. They're in exile because they have continued from this day on to not trust their God and trust His Word and trust His promises. And so now they've been put in exile and they're being told this Word. Why? To remind them that God's promises are still there. His Word is still there. His Word will still come true. He is still going to save and rescue His people. Don't ignore His words and His promises to you. If you do, you do so at your own peril. It would be a call to them to remain faithful in the shadow of the incredible good news of their covenant-keeping God. That's what it would have been to them for us. It should mean so much more. The, the good news that you and I have is so much better than the good news of the Syrians are gone, the siege is over. That would have been incredibly good news for them. But how much more incredible our good news that the greatest rescue ever has taken place, greater than the rescue of baby Jessica, greater than that siege and that miraculous provision as God rescues his people. Ultimately, that incredible rescue that has come to us in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And we have that promise before us. A promise that we must hold true, that, that, that He has already accomplished it, that He has already won the victory, that He, if we believe in Him, if we trust Him, He's already rescued us. Do you believe it? Do you know it? And that He who, who already won the victory, He's going to return and he's going to make all things new. That that is truly going to happen. The promises of the Lord, every single one of them to us, will come true. Now, as you sit here today, if you're a believer, do you understand how great this victory is? Do you, and maybe we should start at another place. Do you understand that you are worse off than the Israelites when they were in siege and they were stuck with dove's dung. Do you understand that you're worse, we're worse off than that? What Scripture tells us is that we were dead. What is it that Jesus rescued you from? Did Jesus rescue you from just not being too bad? 
How is it that he saved you? How did he rescue? What did he rescue you from? Do you understand? Do you believe, truly believe that you had nothing to offer when he rescued you? That you were helpless. That you were dead, as Paul says in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that you are really dead in your sin? That He perfected, that He did everything for our rescue? Do you believe the, what, what Paul goes on to say in, in verses 18 and 19? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for, for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you understand? Do you know today what Jesus Christ has done for you? If you don't know Jesus, might I encourage you that you aren't in any worse of a place than all those who know Christ in here this morning. They were no better off than you. They weren't any better. They didn't deserve any more the salvation that came to them. I encourage you this day to believe and to trust Him, trust the Savior, trust the One who came and died and rose from the dead so that we, so that you and I might have life. Do you, do, do you hear the good news for us today? A good news that I might add that we shouldn't be able to help but go out and share. That if, if this good news is really that good, if we were really dead and we've been brought back to life, we should want to share that good news. Yes, we need to feast, and we're going to feast this morning. But then we have the privilege to go out and tell others about this incredibly good news that God came to save us, and He came to rescue us, not when we were good enough, but when we were dead. And so, this morning we have to ask ourselves, do we trust God's Word? Do we trust His promises? And most importantly, do we trust the promises that He have given, has given us in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord? Do you trust Him? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our, our faith is so prone to wander. We want to trust you, and so often we find ourselves looking to so many other things, looking to everything else. Oh, Father, would you help us to trust you. Holy Spirit, would you apply the work of our Savior Jesus Christ to our hearts this day, reminding us today of the incredible good news of our Savior, of what you have saved and rescued us from.
might we be changed more and more because of it? And might we go forth sharing and proclaiming this incredible good news? Oh, Father, we thank you for the good news of our Savior Jesus Christ this day. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.